0: Welcome back, everyone. Today, we're joined by Preston Byrne from Anderson Kill Law and a fellow at the Adam Smith Institute. Preston, how are you?
1: Yeah, not bad, thanks. Glad to be here and to finally uh, hang out with you guys on the Internet somewhere other than Twitter.
0: Yeah, right back at you. And in a different order today, Bennett, how are you? I'm doing well, Cass. How are you? I'm good. We have a few topics that we would love to touch on with you, Preston. I, you've been around this space longer than either of us, so you know, you know a lot more about some of the stuff than we do, and uh, you've had your ideas shift in different directions than perhaps we have. So I think this will be a great discussion, actually, and I figure why not start with, start out with our bread and butter, which is Tether and stablecoins. So what are your thoughts these days on Tether.
1: I think just by way of further background for your listeners, just to sort of introduce the where I'm coming from on the perspective. You know, you're quite right. I did start a little earlier than you guys did. Around two, late mid to late 2013 is when I really got very interested in this space. 2014 is when I sort of dove in, quit my job, started an early. You know, we think the first permissioned or enterprise blockchain startup. Uh, at the time, for which we were roundly uh, pilloried by most of the Bitcoin community, and our, our thesis turned out at least to be early, if not completely wrong. Anyway, so with that as our, our sort of factual background, there were back in the day, you know, before you guys ran the sort of crypto skeptics corner, there were two big annoying crypto skeptics. One was yours truly. And the other one uh, was tim swanson Uh, and tim is still like right there with you he's a really good analyst and he knows where you know he knows all of the characters in a lot of cases he knows them personally Uh, in my case i was a skeptic for a while if if i have if i get interrupted or you hear a barking noise in the background that's my dog yeah he's complaining yes what do
2: you want excuse me
1: initially i was deeply skeptical about all things crypto because there were just so much bad behavior in the space and eventually what I realized is in any sort of cutting edge area, you're going to have a ton of bad behavior and a ton of BS where people are just kind of making stuff up as they go along and, and you know, their language is cutting checks that the tech can't cash. So I kind of got used to that and accepted that as normal. And then COVID happened and that really radicalized me. Uh, in, in a very significant way, because I looked at the the current institutions, the fiat institutions, and just saw them be completely incapable, right, of managing themselves. Um, so that since then, really for the last 12 months or so, I've been very unashamedly pro-crypto, total like hopium huffing. I think that, you know, I try not to invest in any of this stuff and I try not to be too biased as to one project against another, but I'm pretty thoroughly convinced at this point, that crypto is sort of on the march, and stablecoins. You know, getting to the original question here, um, stablecoins are an important part of you know that ecosystem. Uh, if not important from the, like the perspective of saying, well, it's important and meaningful and morally good that we should have them, uh, they're certainly significant, right? There are huge amounts of liquidity, which are currently tied up. I think it's north of hundred billion dollars now, which are which is notionally tied up in these cryptocurrencies. Uh, the largest of which is, of course, Tether, right? And so with that, that's not, I mean, an enormous amount of money. It's a large amount of money, but it's not an enormous amount. But it is a fairly significant amount of money. It's attracting all kinds of bad attention from the regulators. And I expect it's going to be a very significant topic in the year year to come or so.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to me because on one hand, you're very bullish on the space in general. But on the other, I assume that you see... Significant regulatory risk involved in stablecoins, which arguably is the most liquid assets in, in this class right now. So, how do those two ends meet?
1: I mean, regulatory risk comes from a lot of different directions. The two princip- the three principles sort of prongs, at least in the United States, for cryptocurrencies are commodities regulation, securities regulation, and money transmitter rules. Stablecoins, generally speaking, tend to be money transmission questions. There are some out there, for example, Rohan Gray. And so he, he thinks that all stablecoins need to get bank charters because they present prudential risks to the financial system. I just don't think they're that big. I think they're basically just e-money providers, right? So, the first thing that they would have to comply with in the US, the primary consideration is money transmitters. With some other types of stablecoins, however, for example, Maker, you also have to consider potential securities issues, because the ways that they run themselves, they have other components, right? Or basis is another example of something which has several different components, um, and we can talk, get into what those things are as, as this conversation continues. But those other components also implicate things like securities regulations. As yet, we haven't seen a ton of enforcement against you know, any stablecoin project. I think that if you're a clever prosecutor with a mandate to do it, you could probably find all kinds of things that are wrong with various stablecoin schemes. Uh, in particular, the fact that they can be freely transferred on chain without any KYC checks being done. That's something which I think is, uh, is an issue. But yeah, that, that's the regulatory landscape there.
2: And in your opinion, the current money transmitter framework, the state by state framework, is sufficient to handle any risks associated with stablecoins? I mean, it depends on what risk you're trying
1: to solve for, right? If you're trying to fix consumer protection, right, what's the principal risk from a stablecoin? I think the principal risk is that it isn't backed. So if someone turns around, they say, I have a stable coin, let's say I say, you know, the marmot coin, right? That I, let's say I have a marmot coin and I say, marmot coin is always backed by a marmot that lives in my yard. And so I give someone a marmot coin on the promise that it's backed by this marmot. If I'm lying, right? If I'm not telling the truth, then the government has remedies for that principally that they can turn around and they can take me down for wire fraud, right That's a crime. <laughs> you're getting something good benefit uh, in exchange for uh, a quantity of money and that's not so, you're not allowed to do that. You also have unfair trade practices regulations in every single one of the 50 states and the District of Columbia, and in fact, federal uh, section five of the FTC Act, uh, which allows the government to intercede if a company or even a stablecoin provider is engaged in a deceptive trade practice. Now those aren't strictly speaking financial regulations, those are trade regulations and just general criminal law. So it's not something where you'd say, well, this has been tailored to, you know, treat stable coins as a financial product. You could also say in some cases, if they're backed by baskets of assets, uh, that you're dealing with something like an ETF, Which would be a securities regulation uh, issue. And you can also say that they should get bank charters, right? Because it's a prudential regulation issue. I don't necessarily think that that's appropriate for stablecoins, given the fact that they're ostensibly full reserve, right? Unlike banks, which principally hold financial assets. And so they have to have enough liquidity to satisfy depositors in the event of a collapse. Stable coins, I guess they also hold financial assets, but the idea is that they're more or less hundred percent full reserve. So even if you had some significant impairment in the value of those assets, you should reasonably expect that most people are going to be able to get most of their money out. So that, that's, the, that's the universe there for, for you know, at least stable coins where you have a, a defined entity that's issuing the coin and they have claims, they make claims about what's actually backing the value of that coin up.
0: For me, the question here becomes, and, and maybe this is the difference between, you know, legalese and just uh, standard discussion. We're assuming that a lot of these stable coins are fully backed. And it's been proven over and over again that fully back, just the definition of that seems to change. Right. And that isn't an issue strictly that isn't a tether issue. That is also like we don't really know what's going on with USDC. You mentioned die like die is collateralized largely by USDC so whole host of other issues there and for me really every other fully reserved fully backed stablecoin i have issues with i know a lot of other skeptics seem to think GUSD and and some of these other other ones are kind of like more on the okay side i take issue with with all of them but i i'm trying if you can help me understand your perspective a bit a bit more <sighs>
1: How do you, like, how do you mean my perspective? I mean, I, I think stable coins fall into three buckets. They fall into what I call algorithmic stable coins, which in a word are bullshit. they have uh, collateral, crypto collateralized stable coins, which are self-referential. They're basically derivatives. And then you have asset-backed stable coins, which hold assets and then claim to peg their value to a reference asset, right? So with the algorithmic stuff, they basically say that there's some magic where you have an incentive mechanism that pushes the price up uh, if it goes below the peg, which is set by some third party article and drags the price down by some other mechanism if the price goes above that peg. The problem with those such systems is they're entirely self-referential. And usually what we've seen in practice is that the proposals include the provision of a large pool of liquidity, which is to be deployed, you know, just in case to make sure that the price hits it's the you know, quote unquote correct level. And in those cases I think that's that's pretty clear. It's like, okay, yeah, great. If you want to create some artifice which runs itself on the basis of market manipulation and this, you know, totally deceptive trading practices on a, a number of you know, thinly traded uh, exchanges, be my guest. Like, go ahead. You can make that work until you run out of firepower to subsidize the system. And we've seen that happen again and again. BitUSD failed. Nubits failed. Basis, which was founded by this guy, Nader Al-Naji, who now runs BitCloud, that didn't even, that, that blew up in the hangar. It didn't even take off. The second set of schemes is what I like to call crypto collateralized, right? So that's the sort of thing where you say, listen, I'm going to issue you a coin worth a hundred, right? A hundred cents or a hundred dollars, but you have to give me 120, 130, 140, 150% of that coin in collateral. And then by reference to some third party Oracle, which is being run off the chain, uh, you basically get margin called. Uh, if the value of your collateral is impaired, and then your tokens, your your crypto gets auctioned off to satisfy you know the debt that you've created. And so Maker is is one such system. The issue with that is that it is in- inextricably tied to two things. So one of them is that you're linked to the chain, and what we've seen with at least in the case of Maker was that Ethereum is so piss poor, or rather it tries to do so much that it's unable to mediate traffic that's moving around. So if you have a lot of traffic coinciding with a a fairly violent price movement, uh, Maker breaks. And that happened in March of 2020 and people lost millions of dollars and it was very unpleasant. B, that's just, you can do Maker with anything else. Uh, and what happens is if the price moves against you, the value of your collateral is impaired to the you know to the tune of the multiple which you've collateralized it. So if you put hundred fifty in collateral to, to create hundred and die, uh, and then it moves against you by ten percent. Uh, you're just losing money at one point five one point five x, the rate you would lose it if you'd just gone out and bought the dollars in the first place. Similarly, if the value of the underlying collateral ether goes up, Right, everyone gets richer in that in that system, right? So what you can do is you can go take your ether, wrap it up in a contract, go get DAI, you're leveraged long on DAI, use the DAI, go buy more ether. It seems like a great plan uh, until again, like the system runs out of capacity to keep providing people with leverage, It starts moving against them, and then they start getting margin called, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there's no there's no real you know magic to die, um, and my suspicion, it has a weird and funny habit of snapping right back to the $1 peg very, very quickly after some fault is found or something is broken with it. And so I, I do wonder uh, how it does that, because certainly in, in the wild, natural financial instruments don't behave like that. You know, it, it, nature abhors a straight line and dies very, very weirdly manages to get a lot of straight lines, so you know, who knows? Uh, and then the third category of stable coin, of course, are your you know, financial institution issued or private company issued coins where people make promises, right? They say, listen, this is a contractual promise. I will pay you $1. If you give me a dollar, I'll give you a dollar back later. And, you know, if you're a trading desk in Bitcoin, right, it makes sense for you to give me that dollar and for me to run this system for you because I run an exchange and, you know, you have a need to do arbitrage between exchanges that use this coin. That's what something like Tether or Circle or Paxos or Gemini Dollar uh, serves as. And so I think that's actually what most of the attention is being focused on by regulators, because it's something which is pretty easy for a financial regulator to comprehend and understand. They're like, okay, this is like a, a money market fund or something like that.
2: I, I'm just curious where you'd see something like the original plan for Libra fitting in, which was basically a basket of assets backing something with a roughly stable value with regular re-evaluations of the conversion rate between like Libra and dollars, especially since Libra is the one that really prompted a lot of the congressional and regulatory interest in stable coins in the last two years.
0: Sorry, I usually don't butt in like this during episodes after we've recorded, but it's come to my attention that probably some of you are not familiar with what Libra is. Libra was the Facebook attempt at uh, essentially a stable coin. It never got off the ground. It changed its name to Diem, and I guess they're attempting to still do something with it, but that, that was their stable coin. Anyway, let's continue.
1: Yeah, Libra was kind of a half-baked product by people who've been told their entire lives that they're really clever and they've been very much overpaid, who decided not to do their homework in crypto don't have the ethos and decided they wanted to wade into it because Bitcoin, right? And they thought that they could somehow find some regulatory arbitrage, which would allow Facebook to consume, you know, embrace, extend, and extinguish uh, because we have the best developers and et cetera, et cetera. I've been told the Libra code base is like really, really good um, by people who are in a position to know. They're like, yeah, this is a very you know, well put together piece of code. But <laughs> the issue is not that it's not, it's not a software design problem, right? The issue is that they wanted to have a global money transfer system that was asset backed that operated simultaneously in you know 192 countries at once complying with the financial regulations of all of them, uh, which is impossible. Right? So if you're selling securities or something, you don't do it in 192 countries at once. You do it in one. If you have a separate issue issuance that you want to do in another country, you do a separate issuance for that country. So I don't think Facebook really understood the complexity of the undertaking or you know how something like Bitcoin, for example, uh, manages to work its way around that complexity simply by not having anyone in charge. With the stablecoins, you know, we as we've seen recently, you know, in the last week or so, Binance for example, do they have a stablecoin of their own now, Binance? It's a Paxos white
2: label, but yeah.
1: Okay. I mean, so so Binance has a stable coin, but Binance, of course, operates in every country in the world. And I remember back in 2015, people were saying, oh, well, you know, Binance, their revenues are higher than uh, Deutsche Bank's this quarter. It's a you know, huge business, blah, 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 blah. And like back then, lawyers in the space would look at the way Binance did business and were like, any day now, like any day, like the doors are going to get kicked in. You know, people with badges are going to say, you know, you're under arrest, blah, 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 blah. And of course, then nothing happened. So we're all sitting there like, what? what?" Now, of course, we've seen this week, the Lithuanians, the British, the Singaporeans, the Hong Kong, the Italians, uh, have all started coming out and saying, Binance is no longer authorized to do business in our jurisdiction. They've frozen their their shares. They they had a, a market where they were selling synthetic versions of Tesla and Apple. So we've started to see actually the regulatory pushback against that company worldwide starting to really coalesce in the last two weeks. It doesn't come to me as any surprise that that's taking place. It does come as a surprise that it took rather so long for people to do it. The regulators really have been asleep at the wheel for four or five years. And that's part of my skepticism, right, about crypto several years ago, was that the regulators were going to come in and they were going to break it up. But they they never came. So a space where you had probably 10, 15 million users With a couple of major trading venues where if you'd had robust enforcement early on against those trading venues where really you just held their feet to the fire and said no you must comply and you know a couple people got thrown in jail and that sort of stuff i think that really that would have set back the space by five to ten years it would have you know given more of an opportunity for crypto and regulation to sort of interface with one another that didn't happen what we're in now is this like exponential rip-roaring growth with you know 100 to 200 million global users and i don't think any amount of regulation is going to be able to stop that at this point it's it's too big so that's part of the reason my skepticism shifted i just looked at it and said this is getting too big it's getting out of hand and out of control but it's getting out of control in such a way you cannot put this genie back in the bottle there's just simply too many moving parts in too many different places and um the regulators don't have enough they don't have the knowledge they don't have the coordination ability in such a way that it could mount an effective response uh, to the fact that technology is is outpacing it in, in effectively all areas, so that's my two cents on that.
0: So, so this actually co- ties back into to my original question, which was uh, requesting your perspective on this. I heard you essentially assume that all of these fully backed collateralized stablecoins, we're assuming a lot about them. It's been proven time and time again that this assumption of fully backed, we're assuming a lot to suggest that they're actually one-to-one backed. And so what happens now? Like, we're at this crossroads, I feel like. You're right. Regulation fell way behind. But we're, we are at a crossroads. You you are seeing this regulatory action against Binance. And now people are paying attention to Tether and Circle wants to go do an IPO. What happens now?
1: <sighs> Probably not much. Um, I think y- you might see... One thing I've wondered about the stablecoins, the ones that are fully backed, right, that are also run wholly on chain. So, for example, Tether, we know, has a Tron. There's Tron Tether, there's Ethereum Tether. But that implies, right, that you can use it without ever really communicating with Tether, your identity or anything else, as long as when the money comes on and when it comes back off, that you're KYCing yourself at those endpoints. That's a problem from sanctions compliance so I wouldn't be surprised if we saw some sanctions issues. So if, for example, it, it was found that <clears throat> any given stablecoin happened to be used by individuals who are on the sanctions list in Ukraine or North Korea or something like that, that, that's an obvious hole. Right in the in the current way that a lot of stablecoins, or at least the projected future of stablecoins, the idea that you have a coin where you can just hop in and out, but you're only going to be KYC, you know, when you actually seek to withdraw on the system, that that's not going to fly from a legal standpoint. I don't think this open-ended stablecoin idea that lives on public blockchains has much of a future for that reason. If you had a system which was totally gated, right, where every single person on the chain was whitelisted and you knew the identities associated with any given address. That's a really different proposition. You, that's totally fine to, to have a stable coin system that works like that as long as you're KYCing everybody and you're complying with all of your, your obligations. So I think one of the assumptions that's wrong is that we're going to have these open-ended stablecoin systems. I think those will end. I think that the fact that they haven't ended is really the fault of the government for not you know for allowing them to continue in in that form, but you know we'll we'll see what happens. And we'll probably have a more regulated space where you have everybody KYC'd, everybody whitelisted. I don't think this open-ended stablecoin concept has any future at all. I think the closed-ended stablecoin where you have everybody identifying themselves probably does have a future and probably a really interesting one. But it'll be subject to the Bank Secrecy Act supervisory regime, just like every other money transmitter. And, you know, it'll be something which law enforcement can investigate. And it'll be something where exchanges will have a higher burden demonstrating that these systems aren't being used to launder the proceeds of crime. Right. So ransomware and things like that. So I think there's a lot more supervision coming to the stablecoin space. I think uh, it'll be very, very overdue <laughs> when it finally does come. And I think there will probably also be this sort of black market for stable coins where you have stuff like DAI to go and interact with decentralized systems like Uniswap. So I think that'll, that'll be a totally different ecosystem and there are different regulatory concerns that will need to be addressed. But I think right now the regulators are just so overwhelmed that there's not a ton of a prospect that anything's really going to happen to those, those sort of second order systems that are more or less running themselves.
2: So I actually kind of want to make a transition away from stable coins for a minute and get your thoughts on how DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, and their governance tokens fit into the current like regulatory picture in the United States.
1: Yeah, DAOs are the dumbest thing that has ever been come up with. Actually, before we came up with permission blockchains, we created a thing called DAO. This was summer of 2014. It was the first Ethereum DAO. We called it Eris, E-R-I-S. And the idea was that we were going to automate the functions of a non-profit organization on an Ethereum-style chain. We couldn't actually do it on testnet because Gavin Wood made the block size too small. So we were unable to deploy all the smart contracts in a single block. So that's what led us to fork Ethereum. Which then gave us the bright idea of actually, well, if we have just forked Ethereum, why don't we just go and give this forked software to enterprises so they'll have their own software which runs native Ethereum applications, which maybe they can then go and hook into Ethereum chains. So that, that decision to mess around with the block size is what actually led to permission blockchains as we know them today. So what? So we created it and then we realized as we were doing it, we're like this is just some software, right? So if you want to go put any blockchain components or tokens or incentives or whatever, go ahead, do it by all means. It's not going to change legally the classification of the thing. You know, that that is dictated by the users and their intentions when they go and create uh, that particular critter. Like if you're creating something and you intend it to be you know, two or, one or more person or two or more persons, you know, undertaking a business for profit, right? That's a partnership. So if you created a DAO, but you did not elect to link it up to some corporate form, or you could be an unincorporated association, But really it's up to you to determine what classification that thing falls into. The DAO people kind of fetishized the DAO form. And they said, well, the DAO is a separate form unto itself. And that the, the sort of most recent iteration of that fetishization of the concept is um, Open Law and Wyoming DAO LLC, which says that, oh, by the way, we can you can incorporate an LLC, which is also a DAO, which is like the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You either incorporate an LLC, right? And it has members and those members sign an operating agreement, right? And that operating agreement governs the terms between them. It can be in software, it can be on paper. It doesn't matter, right? It's a contract. So basically you can pick whatever, you can do it on Vellum. I don't care, <laughs> like, it just it's irrelevant. So they've now said, well, no, we have these DAO LLCs and we can call them like algorithmically managed or member managed or whatever. And it's like, no, it's managed by a contract. If that contract happens to be a bit of software, like great, like that's an interesting way of, of going about member governance. Uh, but what we've already seen started to happen is people are abusing the form. So I think the first DAO that incorporated in Wyoming claims to be an algorithmic stablecoin, which is we've been over, right? An algorithmic stablecoin is is horseshit. It's not gonna work. The only way it works is by you know, engaging in what in any other circumstances would be described as market manipulation. So it's encouraging a lot of bad behavior because people go, oh, cool. We've got this like Dow thing in Wyoming. We'll just go incorporate a Dow. And then we're like, we're good without thinking, okay, well, what happens if members enter and leave? Like how do we deal with the partnership tax considerations if it's a pass through? You know, accounting for that stuff is really, really complicated. I don't even pretend to know what to do when that stuff comes up there. We have a tax guy. I send it to him and I say, cool, partnership tax. Could you kindly deal with this? Because I have no idea what I'm doing when it comes to this. So this is complicated stuff. And I fear that the down people have oversimplified it and they're going to create some very significant problems for themselves down the line. The minute they have first contact with the IRS is when they're going to start realizing what a mistake they've made.
0: What do you foresee then as the consequences of this Wyoming law? Like what uh, you're talking about the IRS right now. So there's one consequence. But what would be let's imagine the worst hypothetical here.
1: The worst hypothetical is that it confers legitimacy on stupid projects that shouldn't exist. And that's there are a lot of projects in crypto which are profoundly stupid and do not deserve to exist. But people have done them anyway because people are stupid. And people do things that they shouldn't do or that aren't going to go anywhere. That's the whole thing with startups, right? Every startup, when you come up with it, looks absolutely idiotic. It's like, why, especially at the cutting edge. And occasionally, right, either the founder's stupidity happens to line up with a lot of luck or the founder just happens to be particularly insightful. And then that startup becomes a runaway success and knocks it out of the park. But in a lot of cases, you just have really stupid startups being started by non-conformists. This particular brand of stupidity, which is the DAO stupidity, is particularly stupid because it involves people not understanding or engaging in a kind of like cargo cult lawyering as they try to understand the proper way that software and legal interests are supposed to interact with one another. You know, they're overcomplicating and to a certain extent almost engaging in magical thinking about how organizations work and function, because it's something that they don't understand. saying, well, if you have a DAO, it takes care of all these issues. And it's like, no, if you have a DAO, it's a record-keeping mechanism, which is going to basically allow the members to go and vote and make decisions. But all of those decisions are still there for the members to be made, right? So for the members to make, excuse me. So- that it doesn't really take away any of those issues around things like fiduciary duties around just dis- exercises of discretion around what happens if you sell your membership interest to somebody else how do you account for that and and I think it's going to lead to a lot of problems from people who use that model Re-
2: related to that and dows in general I often look at the governance tokens that are meant to govern these DAOs. And especially the ones that directly give you like a yield from the treasury or from what the protocol is earning or ones that give you some kind of claim against the treasury seem often to me to resemble securities. Have you ever had a similar thought looking at some of those governance tokens? Yes, all the time, every time. That's a problem. And one of the issues is that nobody, it's its
1: an edge case. It's not a problem that we've really seen. I mean, I think the first time that we've seen a coin get mass delisted because of a regulatory opinion on its status as a security was Ripple. And when XRP was delisted from Coinbase after it, they got sued on like Christmas Eve, it was a real dick move by the commission. <laughs> like, you know, got to get, get it done in the fiscal year, I suppose. So the Ripple got sued on like the 23rd or 24th of December, and then Coinbase basically turned around and went, okay, they're they're gone. They're off the platform uh, very shortly thereafter. Yeah, that's the first time we've seen that. I don't think it'll be the last, but like the fact that Ripple was the first and they've been around for so long, tells that gives you some indication of how behind the regulators are. They're good good four or five years behind schedule in terms of these governance tokens. I'm sure that something will happen. But I'm sure it
2: also won't happen until at least 2023 or 2024. Yeah, that seems very reasonable just based on the pace we've seen so far.
0: Cass? We're talking about governance tokens, and I can't help but bring up CBDCs, which are central bank digital currencies, the ultimate governance token, if you will.
2: More of a government token.
0: (laughs) Yeah, sure. Um, I know uh, you have some intense disagreements with Rohan, and... Honestly, one of the points that I didn't expect to agree with him on was CBDCs acting as though they're cash. Like, if you're going to have a CBDC, you want privacy aspects to it and you want it to not just be a surveillance tool, which is how I think most people perceive it right now. From the alternate perspective, from the other side of the aisle... I would like to hear your thoughts on CBDCs, the Fed issuing CBDCs and the future of CBDCs and therefore, I guess, stable coins in some sense.
1: So CBDC is basically like having a, a direct deposit with the Fed, right? Like having a direct account with the Fed. Essentially, that's what it is. got a dollar claim at the Federal Reserve. So I don't see them ever allowing people to transact in secret on CBDCs. They'll want to know who holds what, when, and what transfers were made just for supervisory purposes. And what, and I I, I think Rohan likes it. Remember, he's an MMT guy. Um, the role of a CBDC in that sort of system is to provide essentially a no-cost alternative to the banking system. No cost, at least at the point of use, right, for the user. So it would outcompete the banking system and private payments providers and others. And once you eliminate them, then you basically brought the entire financial system under the aegis of the state, and you can do whatever you want. So I, I'm not a big fan of the CBDC concept. Uh, I, I don't see the government ever allowing people to do private or transactions on CBDCs. So, so I, I'm very much against it. They're gonna do it anyway, but I don't think they're gonna get anyone to use it. Uh, they'll certainly try. Maybe they'll outlaw Bitcoin or something like that. But um, either the the fact that they're focusing on this, like Jerome Powell said the other day, he said, well, if there's a CBDC, then obviously there'll be no need for Bitcoin. Either he's deliberately missing the point or like our regulators really have absolutely no idea what's going on, what the sentiment is about the way that they're managing the or I should say mismanaging the economy.
0: So the only thing I'm going to push back on there is while I agree with you, this statement that a CBDC would... negate all cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and others. Well, that... I didn't say that. Powell said that. No, no, no. I'm I'm su- I'm talking about Powell's statement. So what I'm suggesting here is that Powell, you're referencing Powell's statement, which is that stable coins and cryptocurrencies won't have a use case. I disagree on that second part. The idea that Bitcoin won't be used because of a CBDC is, um out of touch. But I do think that a CBDC would instantly gain traction just based on reach, uh, if that makes sense.
1: We already have the digital currencies, which are akin to stable coins, PayPal, right, or Venmo. Those are balances. They're balances on, their, on those companies' balance sheets, which are then translated into ACH debits, which go to our accounts. So it's not Anything that's new, people saying, well, listen, I have my own private money. Stable coins are just like a really open API for money, a way that you can run something where you can verify independently on two different nodes what you know, a balance is and where it comes from and all that sort of thing. That's the power there, is that it's really, really open. I think that there's going to be some restriction of the openness for regulatory reasons, but I think that there will still be demand for private money that you might not want the Fed you know, supervising all the time. Unless it's a, you know, a suspicious transaction or something where the, the company in question would have to send out a SAR or CTR, CTR. It's a, a currency transaction report, so if there's over 10 grand, you got to send a CTR to the Treasury. So yeah, I, I think there's, there's already use cases for private monies which don't involve legal tender being moved from A to B, but essentially what you're doing is you've got a, an entry on someone else's uh, ledger, right? You've got book entry on their ledger. So it, it, I don't see that changing just because the Fed decides they're going to issue a digital dollar.
2: This is almost totally disconnected from our last question, but it's one of the last things I wanna get your thoughts on. Are there any places in the more decentralized finance world where you think there have been really novel creations that are actually bringing value in a way that's not going to bring eventual regulator backlash?
1: Sure, I mean, the regulators remember they can
2: only regulate
1: what they can touch. So we're seeing stuff, for example, decentralized exchanges that are coming up. And one of the issues with DEXs, right, is that people try to make money from a DEX. So if you have a DEX smart contract that's on the chain, right, you write a bunch of DEX code, you put it on the chain and that's it. Um, you're not gonna be liable for operating it, right? So there's just code out there that you wrote, that someone put on a blockchain and that's that. What we have is we have, however, like vertically integrated businesses where there's code on chain, and then there's a, some other component here, and then there's a UX. Ether Delta was one such system, which was basically running underneath someone's bed in New York. So, like, so like that, that sort of stuff. There you have a lot of different... It's not just a DEX, right? It's a DEX with a web server with a bunch of other stuff. And so that's not decentralized. But I think the idea of being able to trade on-chain assets with other on-chain assets and potentially being able to do that across chains, those are really powerful ideas. I think that what you will wind up seeing is that people have... Fully client-side you know, implementations, where you're running local copies of the chain or chains which you want to transact on, and then you have the software which allows you and someone else to initiate that transaction on a purely peer-to-peer basis for low or no fee, right? So the issue now is that we don't have all that stuff. So there's a lot of centralization there, and those those centralized points are points of articulation where the state can exercise leverage uh, because basically they have a web server, right, where you can you can apply pressure. So on that front, you know, deck. Is at the moment, if you try to, the issue is if you try to make money from a Dex, if you try to run a Dex, uh, you're going to have regulatory issues. But that doesn't put the Dex back in the bottle. So that's that's one area I find very promising.
0: Okay, so we have Dex's, which I, they've existed for several years now. This is not like a new theme for cryptocurrency. In the end, this always seems to be a major problem is right, you have to keep the lights on and you have to have a front end that people can visit and if those two things can be stopped. Most electricity and all of this stuff that's going to help keep your servers going is only able to be paid for in fiat. And the front ends can always be shut down. So how does it end up being bullish? How do you move past that?
1: Well, you move past it because people are figuring out how to do all this stuff entirely on chain, where they're not operating web servers anymore. And so Eric Voorhees has said he's going to move his entire, he's going to shut down Shapeshift and move the entire thing on chain. Once you've done that, right, and you've sort of washed your hands of further responsibility and you're not actually operating the business anymore, the chain's running it. You're not. At that, Remember that, yes, blockchains consume vast quantities of power on their own, but that's how you keep the lights on. Right, you basically figure out a method that's workable for most users to share the work of managing the system and to operate everything locally on their machines, and you remove yourself completely from the equation. And decentralize the entire thing. And we'll we'll see people gradually figuring like BitCloud is one such example where they say, well, there's a BitCloud blockchain and blah, 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 blah. And so if you want, if you originally when you navigated to Bitcloud.com, it said, oh, you know, you're connecting to the BitCloud blockchain, just like I'm not connecting to the BitCloud blockchain. I'm I'm hitting your servers, right? I'm this is a web server. You are serving me a page and HTML and like I'm looking at a web page. And what we found actually is that we got a bunch of at Anderson Kill. I, I sent a request actually myself on Twitter. I was like, "Hey, Nader, like you do not have my permission to use my name and likeness to sell shit coins." Although if I just left it up, I probably could have made quite a bit of money. So it's like, "Listen, you gotta you gotta take this down." And lo and behold, the, the BitClap blockchain somehow managed to forget that my profile was there. Isn't that amazing? It's a Christmas decentralization miracle. Um, in other words, it's, it's decentralization theater. That, that's one example of a service that's trying to do it. That's Kind of marketing itself on the basis of having done it and maybe in the future right maybe in the future they will do it but at the moment they they haven't got there yet but i think in the future we are we are going to see more and more decentralization more and we scalability is the big issue that hasn't really been solved people haven't figured out how to make blockchains scale to you know multi petabyte level systems and that's an i'm confident at some point someone will solve it uh, it might be not be the most efficient solution in the world. It might involve users hosting their own data. You know, we'll, we'll see what happens.
2: And I just want to add before we move on from this, that like even if you take down the front end for most of the decentralized exchanges, it's still possible to interact with the exchange. So like, even if you take down the Uniswap website, you can still interact with the contract on chain and make the trades. And so it's possible governments would try, like if they thought that a... Company was offering an interface to a decentralized exchange in a jurisdiction where they shouldn't be doing that that they would go after that website, but that doesn't actually stop the decentralized exchange from operating, and I think that's a good thing for us to remember
0: when discussing it uh, I don't know ninety nine point nine percent of users don't know how to interact outside of a front end i like I'm not trying to be unfair here. I'm just saying uh, while you guys might be well aware of how to use uniswap without accessing the front end of that website. Most people who would be trading on Uniswap have no clue how to do that.
1: The phase of this that we're in right now is the equivalent of talking to someone in like 1992 or 93 and being like, you know, one day you're gonna be able to talk to your broker online and you'll be able to log into your bank online. You won't have to go in and sign checks, right? So right now we're saying, well, you know, one day you're gonna be able to use a decentralized exchange without going through a website. And one day, you know, you're going to be able to do a cross-chain, you know, swap. Those kinds of applications are not sufficiently easy to do at the moment without a central counterparty managing and intermediating among the various connections. And it's not sufficiently easy for someone who doesn't have a huge amount of technical knowledge to bridge those things any more than it would be to like go and engage in digital transactions with your bank before banks have websites, right? So that's kind of where we are now. I mean, so Bitcoin, you know, which is the 1.0 of all of this uh, is only 10 years old and Bitcoin and similar systems, the adoption of those systems is currently 100 million, 120 million users worldwide. That gives you some some concept of the scale of like how small for Uniswap. I mean, how many power users are there of Uniswap? Probably in the five figures, high five figures, mid five figures, if that. So we're not we're not talking about hundreds of thousands of people. We're probably talking about tens of thousands or low hundreds of thousands maximum.
0: I think this has probably been our most bullish. Interview in terms of the space in general that we've done so far and I actually really appreciate it Preston because I think I think we're perceived as being opposed to all of this and really we're just trying to learn like you and everyone else so
1: I remember being the skeptic on the block, and that—that's a, a, a role I very happily relinquished. But like, it's yeah, it's it's important to have critical voices checking what everyone's assumptions are, because even you know, remember like even stuff like assuming that Bitcoin's going to be the winner was a huge assumption, which more likely than not is wrong, but we don't know that. So it's important for people to be out there sense checking all of this stuff. I think those sorts of people are, are, they're profoundly underpaid, you know, boom economy. People don't really pay. One thing I learned being a skeptic is that people aren't gonna pay you a lot of money to tell them not to do stuff. They'd rather look to get you to knock stuff out of the park for them. But you yeah, know, it's it's fun and it's it. I think it'll stand you in very good stead uh, in the years to come because you're paying really close attention to everything that's happening everywhere. So in five years, when someone says, "Well, what's this new project?" You're going to have the intellectual framework to say, "Okay, hold on a second. I know the history and where everything's been." And so it's a, it's a fun it's a fun role to play, being the skeptic. Um, it's an important one. I learn from you guys, um, and I, I really value your your contributions and your input. You know, it's one of those are viewpoints which I take into account as I think about the space. So you know, I don't know if I don't know if that's useful or, or helpful for you to know.
2: I appreciate it. <laughs>
0: Same. Yeah, that's uh, it's, it's hugely, hugely uh, gratifying to hear these kind of things. And you've been there, you know, it's been nice to hear some people like yourself saying that skeptical voices are necessary from time to time. I super appreciate that. And it's been wonderful having you on. Thank you, Preston, for joining us.
2: Hey, no problem. It's a, it was a pleasure to pleasure to be on your show. Thanks for having me. You can let people know where to find you online on Twitter, whatever, if you'd like.
1: Oh, uh, yes. So you can find me on Twitter at, uh, at Preston J. Byrne. That's B-Y-R-N-E. That will send you to all of my other various you know, legal marketing channels, uh, like my website and things like that. So,
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. This is going to be another two-episode week. So we will be releasing a interview with Francis Coppola on Thursday discussing stablecoins, regulation, et cetera. Again, appreciate you listening. See you then. Bye.